What's up? And welcome to Clarity for Parents of Athletes, bringing you stories from professional athletes about their parents and how they were raised. My name is Gabe Nocere from aclearmind.com. All right, and welcome to episode number 28 with another very special guest. And before I get to him, I want to take this time to thank you for listening to this episode and any other episodes that you've tuned into before. And if this is your first one, welcome. And if you find yourself enjoying the podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts to rate and review it and subscribe to it on your favorite platform. And of course, share it with others. You can get a list of all the episodes on my website, aclearmind.com. It also lets you know which platforms the podcast is available on. So again, aclearmind.com. Now I started this whole series with the intention of helping youth athletes out after seeing a lot of parent pressure become too much for their children. And with my background in counseling, I knew that the best way to help any child is to help the parents. And I thought, what better way to help parents of athletes than to hear stories from professional athletes about their parents and how they were raised basically to give some role modeling for parents today. Now, for me personally, I do some workshops with parents and teams and also have worked and I continue to work with athletes and non-athletes as well in small groups and individual sessions over the phone. And if you ever want to look into the possibility of working with me or book a workshop with me for your group as soon as we're past this coronavirus period, of course, just head over to my website at clearmind.com and join my community or email me at gabe at aclearmind.com or you can join our Clarity for Parents of Athletes group on Facebook as well. So just search for it and I'll approve you to join and you can connect with me and other like-minded parents in the realm of youth sports. All right, now, Onto the guest for this episode. His name is Nota Begay, and he is a professional golfer who played on the PGA Tour and is a current commentator for the Golf Channel. Now, Nota just happens to be yet another high level athlete from the state of New Mexico, where I live, and was a multi sport athlete in high school before heading to Stanford and winning a national championship with the golf team over there. Nota happens to be the first Native American that I've interviewed for the podcast, and as you can imagine, his roots are extremely prevalent in his mentality and his success as a golfer, and also his foundation as well, which helps serve the Native American communities. Now, In this episode, Nota talks about his upbringing, how he got into golf, the three aspects all athletes need to have in order to be successful at their sport, and that, of course, goes for parents as well, as you can imagine. And Nota also talks about his experience as a father and his three rules for playing sports that he has for his children. Now, as usual, I end the episode with my takeaways after the interview and dig a little bit deeper into certain points that really struck me, uh, all, of course, with the idea to help benefit you and to make your parenting of your athlete even better. So please stay tuned to that. All right. Enjoy. All right, Nota, I really appreciate your time today. Uh, just wanted to check in. We're recording during the COVID-19 epidemic and pandemic, so I wanted to just check in to see how your experience is going and how your family's doing and, and all that. How are, you, how are you guys holding up? Well, immediate family's doing well. Got three kids, 12, 10, and 3, and 
we're just quarantined in the house here and it's been um quite a change i'm used to traveling quite a bit and being out on the road broadcasting golf and now about my eighth or ninth week in a row home so um a lot of a lot of family time which is i think is a plus for me uh, but on the other side of the scale i guess it's been very um challenging and difficult out in my home reservations of San Felipe Pueblo and the Navajo Nation that have some of the highest infection rates in the nation. Mm-hmm. And so um, trying to mobilize some relief efforts, get the word out, um, working with a variety of different media outlets and other Native American athletes to utilize their social media platforms and just make sure we're doing everything we can to keep our community safe. So not a lot of downtime, um, but just doing, trying to get as much done as I can from the house. Wow. It's great that you're helping out your communities. Now for people who don't really have experience with the native American lifestyle, um, where they live, what is life like on the reservation and why is this hitting so hard on the reservation just for those people who don't quite understand right quick crash course i guess um native american uh maybe history a little bit 101 i mean there's just in the 48 contiguous states here there's 574 um sovereignly recognized tribes that are uh, identified by the federal government and they vary in size from having um, a very small reservation land base you know less than 100 acres to the Navajo Nation that has the largest land land base which is uh, around 27,000 square miles which is larger than six states here in the U.S. Wow and populations range uh, again from the very small scale some tribes have less than 300 um, officially enrolled members in the Navajo Nation, um, I believe, is oh, well over 350,000 members. So, uh, and anything and everything in between, um, going from as the the northwest, north northwest, and you know near the Canadian border near Vancouver, just north of Seattle, all the way down to the very tip of of Florida, and 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 Miami, uh, just outside Miami of the Miccosukee tribe down there. And it's, you know, the, the pandemic's been, in a nutshell, it's, it's devastated the communities. Simply um, don't have the healthcare infrastructure to deal with the uh, overflow of, of people that are sick to quarantine those that have um, contracted the virus and so when somebody gets it in, in, in cases and don't, don't doesn't know they have it but they're contagious the the living conditions especially here in New Mexico with with the 19 pueblos um, they have often you know 10 to 15 people uh, multiple generations living in the same household so um, they're susceptible to the very contagious nature of, of the virus. And, and that's what you're seeing in all of the, the huge infection rates. Mm. Yeah, I, actually, it happened to 
way I was at the grocery store the other day and waiting outside to get in and a, a Navajo woman with her two children, she started telling me about her her family that she doesn't she doesn't live on the reservation, but her family members do. And she said her brother got sick and essentially took it to the house and infected, I think, five to seven other people. And now they're all living with it. So it just really flares up very, very quickly. Yeah. And that's been the biggest challenge. I mean, in terms of just trying to find some some firm footing for the the healthcare practitioners to develop a strategy to address the issues. Um, you know, the, the easiest and quickest thing to do is to, to get your entire community tested. And with the lack of availability um, in molecular testing kits, which, which are the kits that tell you whether or not you do have uh, the COVID-19 virus, um, it, it was just simply hard to make a, a preliminary assessment of just what these communities would look like, and not just in the Native American communities, but state by state. And so that was, and still is to a certain degree in some of our Native American populations, just a difficult thing to do is just to figure out where you're at. And so it's made it extremely challenging because it's it's like hitting a moving target that's changing every day mm-hmm. and and trying to identify just sort of who to who to invest the resources and, and the time in to, to make sure that the virus doesn't spread. Wow. I think you you described it really well and it's a challenging time for sure and and I really applaud you for all the effort that you're putting into your community and and the effort of other Native American athletes and and just people in general. Now kind of going transitioning into a less challenging time, you know, back when you were a child where exactly did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Well, basically grew up everywhere around, you know, in and around these, these, uh, my, my homelands here in New Mexico you know, spent, um, I'm half Navajo, a quarter San Felipe and, and one quarter Isleta Pueblo. They're all New Mexico based tribes. And, um, I, I lived for a small period of time in San Felipe Pueblo. I've lived in on the Sleta reservation as well and used to spend quite a few summers in my grandma's house in Windrock, Arizona on the Navajo reservation. Um, not to mention another 10 or, or 12 different houses I lived in in the Albuquerque area. So it was a lot of moving, a lot of jumping around, um, a little bit of instability, but I uh, was lucky to for the most part to, you know, have food on the table and access to a quality education. My, my parents always felt like it was important for me to be educated and, and was able to achieve a, a strong academic background through the Albuquerque Academy here in, in the city that I grew up in primarily. And then um, that in, in combination with my golf skill allowed me to earn a, a scholarship to Stanford University where I ended up getting a degree in economics and had a had quite a successful golf career there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, very much so. Quite a successful career. Now, before you, be- you got into golf, did you play any other sports as a child? I played whatever we could afford or, or what made sense. 
from a transportation standpoint. I mean, I grew up playing baseball, basketball, soccer. Um, for a period of time, I was playing competitive racquetball in the state. Um, hmm. Love to get out and ski and, you know, but my three main sports in, in high school were soccer, basketball, and golf. I was all state in three sports and was uh, voted the New Mexico athlete of the year in, in my senior year. So. Oh, wow. Awesome. And how, who introduced you to golf? It was my father. Hmm. Just um, mostly by accident, I guess, because he and his friends got a little too old, a little too slow, and, and the <laughs> knees started to hurt too much to play pickup basketball. So he and a handful of other friends transitioned into golf, and I guess they, they just wanted to be outside and, and do something that was athletic. And But they were, they were a, quite a group of terrible golfers, to be quite honest. <laughs> um, some of them ended up being pretty good after a few years. But that was my introduction. It was mostly a, a nine-hole nine beer league that they had uh, <laughs> every every Thursday afternoon at the university course just south of Albuquerque. And um, it was uh, it was quite, quite, quite a fun experience for me to be introduced to the game like that. Yeah. What was it about golf that really sucked you into it? I don't know, really. I mean, looking back, it was an introduction through my dad and then an interest. It was, I think, maybe the solitary pursuit of of excellence. Uh, you, you can't win at golf. You can only play golf. Hmm. That, sounds that sounds interesting because there's always a, a slight – a slightly better level to to achieve. Um, we sort of fast forward to the early stages of my professional golf career, and I shot the at that time, which was, was the lowest recorded score in the history of golf, which was, was fifty nine, which was thirteen under par. Well, there's wow. eighteen holes, so you know at at that time that was the first recorded fifty nine in the history of what was the Nike Golf Tour back then. Um, but there was still room for improvement. And so at, it, it fit my mind. I think it fit my life. I think it was a bit of an escape for me. The golf course mm. um, just provided an outlet for me as a, young, as a young person. And if not for the generosity and kindness of a gentleman by the name of Don Zamora, who was the head golf professional at the public course on the west side of Albuquerque called the Dara Municipal Golf Course. He gave me a, a job. Um, I asked him for a job when I was nine years old, and he gave me one. Wow. And um, I I told him, I don't want to be paid. I just, I just want to practice. And so from the time I was nine till I left for college when I was 17, I worked at the golf course in the summer and Early on, it was showing up to the course at 5, 5.30 in the morning and emptying trash cans, sweeping, cleaning bathrooms, parking carts, uh, just any odd job to get the shop ready to open. And that's what I would do till about 7, 
eight o'clock in the morning and then I'd be free to practice and play as much as I wanted, hit as many balls as I could play as much as I wanted. And, and I took full advantage. I was literally at the golf course most summers from, from sun up to sundown. And that's what sort of paved the way for my, my development as a young golfer. Um, but also just, it provided me that initial access to the sport. Wow. That's incredible. So you had this drive in life and where do you feel like it came from? Did it come from pressure from your parents to be a certain way or was it more intrinsic? I think it was just a, a natural competitive fire that I had uh, because my brother had the same opportunities, but he just, he just didn't want to put the time in. Um, and I just always felt there was a way to get better. I just always felt that there was an opportunity for me to find some other way to um, work harder. And as I developed into a tournament golfer and you start to taste a little victory, a little success and winning my first junior tournament when I was 10 years old, all of a sudden winning becomes a focal point and a motivator and uh, I don't know if it was I liked seeing my name in the paper and that's what motivated me or I like people patting me on the back. I, I don't I don't know exactly. Mm. I just knew that when I was out there working on my game, it was a sense of serenity for me and, and maybe sort of took me away from, you know, many of the domestic challenges that I faced in, in my personal life. Yeah. If you wouldn't mind describing you know, what were those challenges? Because you mentioned that golf was an escape for yourself. So what were you escaping from domestically? Well, my parents never had a great relationship. They were always very combative, uh, divorced at a, at a very early age. Uh, like I said, I, I probably lived in, in 12 to 15 different houses um, before I even graduated from high school. Wow and just a lot of moving around um a lot of instability a lot of i mean and don't get me wrong a lot of love in, in terms of I, I i'm very close with my parents now i i don't fault them or question because when you're dealing with um, poverty uh, lack of resource you kind of do what you need to do. Sometimes it's living with a relative. Sometimes it's living in apartment complex with cheap rent. Um, there was a period of time where I didn't even live with my family. I lived with some friends of ours that took me in uh, because I was lucky enough to attend a very good prep school here in Albuquerque. And my parents didn't want me to have to leave because my mom was working out at Laguna Pueblo. And my dad was working in Winter Rock for the Navajo Navajo nation mm. so um and just those moving around and 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 those that that sort of unpredictable circumstance for a young person um can can be a huge distraction and and golf was probably maybe the only constant that i had in my life which is maybe why i gravitated towards it so strongly wow yeah and it's a very calming sport as well where it's quiet and i i can imagine that how much power you got 
from being in that environment and how much it probably saved your spirit quite a bit. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't characterize it as calming, (laughs) at least not at the competitive. I mean, if anyone's ever played enough, it can be the most infuriating thing you've ever done. (laughs) It, It requires calm. It requires composure, but those are developed skills that someone must have in order to compete at a high level in golf, because it's very different to sort of the more traditional mainstream sports of football, basketball, baseball is in, in football. If you get upset, you get mad, you can take it out on your opponent. You can block harder. You can run faster. Um, you can, you can hit harder. Uh, in, in basketball, it, you know, you can play better defense. You could set a hard screen, screen, you could rebound. Uh, but in golf, if you let your emotions get the better of you and you start to lose control over your, 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 your focus, it, it gets worse. And so being able to rein in those, those emotional outbursts and calm yourself down and keep your heart rate down um, is an acquired skill that is often overlooked and people wonder why the best athletes sort of in the world are, aren't great golfers. I mean, you, you <laughs> talk about, I mean, everybody's currently right now has been sort of infatuated with this whole last dance mm-hmm. series on ESPN about Michael Jordan. And, and, you know, he loves golf, loves golf. And, mm-hmm. you know, one of the greatest athletes, physically gifted people that will ever see grace a a basketball court but he'll never be a great golfer he just can't i and i can't tell you why that is Uh, jerry rice is a good golfer but he'll never be a great golfer Mm -hmm. um there there's just a, a a a level that you have to get to that very very few achieve um to perform the sport um at the highest level Mm -hmm. yeah it's very very unique so who helped you get to that level i don't think the pot the podcast is long enough (laughs) (laughs) you know honestly with so much uncertainty around my my upbringing uh there's there's teachers uh there are coaches uh, mentors i mean just i, I had a I'll give you a handful of, of neat stories here but uh there was um a muscalero apache man his name was kesley edmo and he had one of the ugliest golf swings you'd ever see <laughs> in your life but he loved it he would i'd see him almost every day after work out at Ladera and he'd hit balls and he had a really big loop at the top of the swing, like literally a big loop. Um, and it took all the power out of his swing and, but he, he became a quite a good golfer considering that he was never going to hit it far because he lost so much power in, in his transition. Um, and we became friends. We played a lot of golf together and, He taught me about philosophy. He taught me about, um, you know, Zen Buddhist type of um, 
thinking and, and that sort of mentality and, and gave me books to read. And we discussed those books. Um, I had a English teacher at the academy named Bruce Musgrave, who happened to be my soccer coach, um, a varsity soccer coach. And when he found out I was being recruited by Stanford and when I went through the first round of SATs and I came up a, a, a hundred points short on the, on the verbal side, my math side was strong, no problems, but I was going to need to improve the verbal score of my SAT. Um, he took it upon himself to tutor me in the mornings. And so I'd show up to, to the campus at the Academy at, at six 30 in the morning. And we'd, we'd work for an hour and a half. Um, before school, uh, sentence structure and composition, um, vocabulary, all of these things. And I mean, the, the vocabulary words we worked on are, are seared into my memory. Um, and, you know, it's because of him that I, I finally earned the, the high enough SAT score to to gain admission into a school like Stanford, which completely changed my life. Hmm. I mean, a university like that will change a person's life. And it, it has um, sort of a perfect example of what opportunity can do for a person. And if not for Don Zamora giving me that first job at Ladera Golf Course, and then one of his assistant pros, Leo Van Wart, who um, was a walk-on at the University of Florida when he was in college. Uh, coincidentally, University of Florida at the time he was a walk-on was one of the best programs, college golf programs in history and, and in the nation that at that particular time. So he was never going to be good enough to ever come close to making the starting five. But he got to see what greatness looked like. I mean, about half the players off of that roster went on to play on the PGA Tour. And so when he found himself in New Mexico, for whatever reason, at Ladera <laughs> Golf Course, and he runs into this kid that has the one intangible that you need in golf, which is work ethic, um, he was able to take what he had learned and what he had seen as saying, look, I may not have been a good golfer, but I know what good golf looks like. And so mm. he created this path. He provided drills. He gave me mechanical instruction. He taught me how to play tournament golf because I was getting into some of the, when I was started, when I turned 15, I was starting to play some of the biggest junior events in the nation. And nobody around here had, you know, could tell me what to prepare for, how to get ready. Well, he could. Mm. So if we were playing at, at courses in, in Florida or in Texas, he would tell me about the grasses and the, the density of the sand, the grain and the greens. Wow. All of these things that, um, and if people that are listening that, aren't familiar with golf, they, those sorts of things make a difference. The grain and the greens basically means that one direction, the green will putt faster 
then if you're coming back in the opposite direction, it'll putt slower. And so you have to be able to evaluate by the, by the, the, when the green is light colored and shiny, it's going to be faster when it's darker colored. Um, it's going to be slower. And so you, you can learn how to build those nuances into your preparation. And all of those people to, you know, my golf coach at Stanford, Wally Goodwin, never, never saw me hit a golf ball physically until I got onto campus my freshman year. Wow. He saw my results in the paper, um, and came to watch me play on his recruiting trip to my house, came to watch me play in the state semifinal basketball <laughs> tournament. Um, I was the captain of our basketball team and we were playing um, a game at University Arena, which was the pit in Albuquerque. And we were the top ranked team in the state. We'd only lost one game that whole season. And, um, he recruited me based upon my drive, my will, and my athleticism. And the first time he ever laid eyes on me hitting a golf ball was when I rolled into campus at, at Stanford in the fall of 1990. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah, he would have been, he would have probably been fired these days for not, <laughs> not um, thoroughly eva evaluating a recruit, but that's just the kind of coach he was. And, um, I paid him back by bringing a national championship to the school for the first time in 40 years. Yeah. You made him look good. Right. That's right. <laughs> so this seems like there's so much fate in your life with Don Zamora coming into Albuquerque and, and then this coach never seeing you swing a golf ball or swing a, a club and hitting a golf ball. And you said Stanford, where you even had fate in somebody helping you get into Stanford. And then you said it changed your life. So how did your experience at Stanford change your life? Well, it taught me the value of critical thinking in a 360 perspective, degrees perspective. Um, you know, those were buzzwords at the time, the whole multicultural movement were buzzwords at the time, but you know, 20, 25 years removed from that. That makes a whole, as, as I became a parent, as I left professional sports, as I started to become a little bit more independent outside of professional golf, those things started to make sense to me. And what Stanford provides young people is an opportunity to um, determine what your value is going to be to your life and to society. And that material wealth, material possessions are, are not a great concern in, in Palo Alto and Northern California. It's your ideas. And Stanford's a, a wonderful place to, you know, be a free thinker, um, be a disruptor, and to get exposed to people from all around the world, from, from, a variety of political backgrounds from a variety of racial backgrounds, gender, sexual preference. I mean, it was, it was just a really a, a wonderful place to, to learn. And 
they believe that you can learn just as much from other people, which could be more valuable than you can from the actual curriculum. Mm-hmm. So it's all, it's all um, laid out there, and it's, you take as much of it as you would like and apply it to your beliefs and and how you want to approach the things that you're doing. And I just I always I just always felt like everybody was valued there, and I, I think that if there was more of that in the world, we wouldn't have some of these what I, what I call, uh, you know, societal gaps, um, walls that, that build up Mm. that are, are predicated on lack of knowledge uh, and fear. Um, just, just not communicating with each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's no doubt that building empathy between, especially between cultures, people of different culture really helps bridge those gaps and connects people on a really deep level. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 getting people to being open to new ideas, and then others being open to your your thoughts. I think that's the the first step in in communication and having a joint respect is is a key component of making that whole process mm-hmm. work. Yeah, no doubt. So. While you're at Stanford, I heard your roommate was a pretty good golfer as well. Yeah, the best ever. <laughs> so if, if you're if you're thinking the best ever is pretty good, yeah, he was it. <laughs> so thinking back to my days with my roommates, we always pushed each other to do things and always competed internally and, and but from a place of love. So what was your relationship like with Tiger in golf? It's great. and It still is great. I mean, we've been friends since he was nine years old when we first met at the Optimist Junior World, mm. uh, which was a national junior event in San Diego, California. And he just happened to be playing in the same age group at the same course as my younger brother, Clint. And I went to watch my brother and I heard Tiger Woods was there and everybody knew who this kid was because he was winning junior events by 10 15 20 shots sometimes and nobody was even close to being able to compete with him within the age group and i went up to him and introduced myself and we just became friends ever since and shortly thereafter we were playing a lot of the same tournaments because he would compete it at in the older age groups because nobody in his own age group could beat him and so we just started to develop a really strong friendship and then that culminated in his time at Stanford. And we, we had a a great time. It was his freshman year, my senior year. And it was just great to have him there. The school meant a a lot to him, still does. And those were some of the most fun times. If you ever talk to him about his Stanford days, his, his face lights up and he really, uh, those two years for him were special, and we still we're still very close to this day, and we talk regularly. And our kids are basically the same age. Uh, his older daughter's twelve, my older daughter's twelve, and his son's ten, and, and my my son's ten. So mm. we kind of parent 
at that at that same level in, in dealing with a lot of the same issues and, and raising our kids and so mm-hmm. it's it's really kept us close that's awesome so golf to me and correct me if i'm wrong you know there was a racial barrier a long time ago did you feel there was a racial barrier when you kind of broke into college and into the pga no i mean not so much a racial barrier i think there was just more ignorance um i there wasn't any I, i'd never really experienced any outward racism i know tiger has um in in and i don't know if it's because i'm native american and he's african-american i mean our histories are different in terms of our ethnicity uh you know american indians were here we were the indigenous inhabitants of mm-hmm north america and so we were already here and it's the the europeans that that came and and colonized and oppressed and and killed and you know was the you know the largest example of of genocide you know in in history um you know where the african-american was brought here from africa uh, you know in the slave trade Mm -hmm. and so um just you know the way you know the two minority groups are are perceived by society now um you know in some cases there still is some some prejudice uh i think the golf in the golf the game of golf in and of itself i mean it, it lends itself to um to wealth to to resource which which in you know, just, just in the conversion in math, it, it's going to, you know, there's going to be a lot more, um, you know, Caucasians playing the sport. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, because that's the, that's the infrastructure of our game. It was a, it was a gentleman's sport. It was the wealthy. It was the people from the right families and the businesses and the corporations and things like that. And that's sort of what built the game. Um, and it was guys like tiger and myself that came in and and just you know we we were we weren't out there trying to break down barriers we we were just in the right place at the right time i would say i mean Mm -hmm. um united states golf association selects a team every two years called called the walker cup team it's the 10 best amateurs in the united states and in 1995, Tiger was the first African American to represent the United States, and I was the first Native American to represent the United States on that team. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like better late than never. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was 1995 for for God's sakes. Yeah. But you know, those were things that just kind of happened as we moved up through the game. Um, but fortunately for me, I had never really experienced anything outwardly racist or indecent, which I, I feel very fortunate. Um, I've had some funny things happen to me mm. uh, where I've been attending social functions at nicer, some of the nicer clubs across the country. And um, I've had people come out and um, ask me to go get the car <laughs> for them because um, I'm the valet. Um things like that, which, which, um, 
you know, you just, you just gotta laugh. Yeah. Um, my son, um, we were at, we were at my club. This was, um, maybe three or four years ago or, and you know, I'm a member at the club and so people are parking my car now. And, <laughs> um, you know, one of the members comes out of the front of the clubhouse and I just so happened to be wearing this similar color shirt to the outside service. Oh, no. staff. <laughs> and he goes, Hey, you know, before they get my car, he goes, well, you mind getting me a water? <laughs> and I'm like, sure. No problem. So I ran over <laughs> To the cooler because I knew where the cooler was behind the valet stand there, and I opened up the the cooler and took out a cup of waters and wiped them down a little with a towel and and I went over and I handed it to him and I made sure that he saw who it was because you know there's only a couple PGA Tour pros at this club and I'm one of them uh-huh. and he looked at me. And he was petrified. His <laughs> face turned white. He did like he he absolutely did not know what to say. He was so embarrassed. And I go, I go here. I go, you know, have a great day. Um, I just don't want my kids to let those things get them down. Uh-huh. I don't want people's um misconceptions about um, or expectations of what other people should or shouldn't be to get them down. Mm-hmm. And so I try to turn those things into, into lessons and say, Hey, look, just, just roll with it. It's like, you know, don't, don't empower others to, to categorize you because um, I, I've spent my whole life, sort of trying to break the mold and it's been a heck of a lot of fun and I don't, I don't try and sweat the small stuff. I mean, if people want to have a, a, a narrow minded view about things and place limitations on people because of their zip code or their ethnicity, then that's on them. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't let that impact. Don't let that have any, say so in, in, in how you live your life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're welcome to have their own experience and you can have your own experience as well. So you've mentioned your children. What is your relationship like with them as far as their sporting journeys? What kind of leadership as a father do you give them? Um, we, we, we have three simple rules, um, prepare yourself. So practice, uh, be ready, um, do your best and have fun. Mm. That's it. That's all I care about for my kids. I, I don't care about winning. Um, of course it's fun to win. Uh, but. I don't want winning to dictate whether or not they feel like they were a failure or a success. I, I think that if you work hard and you prepare and that's the cornerstone of, of how you approach sport, you go out there and you do your best and, and you enjoy what you're doing. You win every time. 
you, you can you can come off going okay I, I i put i put my best effort out there mm. um i was too hard on myself and so i just don't want them to have the same uh regrets that i've had i mean i have had a wonderful successful career i've played around the world um I, i've played with u.s presidents and and have had access to people that I, I never would have otherwise without golf. Um, but I never stopped to appreciate it enough. Mm. I was always working for that next win. I was always working for that next level to achieve. And I just, I don't want them to have, um, you know, that kind of experience to where I walked away from my sport and I was like, wow, I wish I really, I wish I really would have stopped for a second and just gave myself a little bit of acknowledgement that, man, Hey, you did a great job here. This was pretty cool. Like, you know, you're seeing it up in a golf tournament in, in Milan, Italy. Um, and you're one of the best players here. It's, uh, and I just, I think the expectations are, it's tough for them. My kids don't want to play golf because the very first time, you know, they really went out with, at an age when my, my daughter was, you know, 10 or 11 and my son was eight or nine, the other kids expect them to be good. Mm -hmm. um, which I, I see that you know, with, with, with Tiger and, and Charlie, um, Sam, his daughter doesn't play golf, but Charlie's really infatuated with the game. And, um, I've had a few putting contests with Charlie over the years. Uh, and he's got a good mind for it. He's got a lot of passion for it. And I just, I, I can't imagine the pressure on that poor kid, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, <laughs> stepping on the tee and, um, I know Tiger's gone out to follow him. I've, um, I've talked, I've tried to talk through it with my kids and just saying, look, be your own person. Um, the only way you're going to be good at golf is to put time into it. It's not going to be because of your last name mm -hmm. and, you know, don't let other people's expectations of you dictate your relationship with sport. Mm. And, uh, you be your own person and, and the equation's never going to change. You get out of it what you put into it. If you're not going to practice, then don't expect to be good. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty simple formula. So one thing you said a little while ago that really stuck with me is, is you said you didn't slow down and appreciate where you were. Your focus was always on trying to win. Do you think if you would have taken less focus on winning, would have taken that off of yourself and put more focus on just appreciating where you were and what you were doing, you would have been as successful uh, as a professional golfer? Who knows? You know, who knows? I mean, um, you, you look at many of the athletes that have achieved so so many great things in their careers and you know there's always been a part of them that has been broken there's always been a part of them that's been flawed i mean you know you look at some of the off course 
occurrences that have you know faced Michael Jordan and Tiger Woods and um it, it's you know a lot of it is just circumstance um can sometimes be a huge motivator so it's hard to say you know I I I would like to think that there could be more of a balance but um every single athlete out there from the top to the bottom you know has 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 that is that is, i mean i take that back every single athlete that's ever played at the highest level so the nfl the nhl the nba pj tour they, they've given their life to their their sport and sometimes it's just a uh, a product of, of circumstance that dictates whether player A makes it and wins a Stanley Cup and player B doesn't. Um, player A gets drafted by the LA Kings and they go on and win the Stanley Cup and player A get, player B gets drafted by the worst team in the league and never sees the light of day their whole career. I mean, those are just the little things that happen mm. that can happen to you in sport. I mean, in 1995, uh, Tigers freshman year at Stanford, we we had the best team in the country, and um, we ended up losing in the national championship in a playoff to Oklahoma State. And on the 72nd hole, I missed a a three footer for birdie that would have won the tournament for us. Um, I think about that putt a lot. I, you know, it's a putt that, you know, you, you make a hundred out of a hundred. It's not, it wasn't a hard putt. I wasn't feeling a tremendous amount of pressure. It just, I just, it was just that moment. I, I, I just, I don't know. Just, I didn't make my best stroke. Hmm. Um, and so there, you know, there's an element of regret there. And my, I'm very, straightforward with my kids and they ask me about it and i say yeah i I think about it a lot i would have loved to have win two in a row i would have loved to won a national championship with tiger um but it just didn't happen that way Mm -hmm. yeah golf's an it's a really unique sport and i kind of compare it to gymnastics in for the fact that you don't have an opponent trying to stop you physically you don't have somebody trying to manipulate a ball like in tennis. It's really always dependent on your performance as an athlete. So what kind of things did you experience? What kind of, I guess, lessons or kind of sports psychology things that somebody taught you or worked through you to help you in being so successful in golf? Well, what I, what I think makes golf great is it's a very objective process the ball only goes where you hit it it has never ever gone any place that i didn't hit it (laughs) um where yeah and you may i i might disagree with the comparison to gymnastics because gymnastics is on the opposite it's subjective you could have two athletes put the exact same performance together but judge the third judge down the line doesn't like the country of origin of the second athlete and mm-hmm. docks him two tenths of a point and 
and so the the end score is a, is a slightly lower score. I have never really enjoyed sports where judging is such a huge part of the end result, whereas golf is is purely about the engagement of the athlete on, on that particular moment, um, which is what makes it so hard. And those competitive processes and though the ability for the the athletes to maintain that level of focus uh, is, is is an extremely daunting task, and it's a it's a scary task because it's a game that when you're trying to win the biggest tournament, whether you're trying to win your first tournament in your career, or you're trying to win your first major, you will always have to face the weakest part of your game. Mm. And, it, and I don't know why that is, but it's just like um, at some point during your round, you will have to face the weakest part of your game and find a way to still make it work. Mm. So what are some tips you can give to golfers out there on how to do that? Well, I mean, it comes down to just a lot of, of trust in your process and believing um, and believing in the methods of execution in understanding that it's, it's about the step-by-step process that you've implemented into the actual swing versus many, why a lot of people can't handle pressure is because they get fixated on the result. Mm. I find that the players that have dealt with the pressure the best are fixated on the process. Mm. They lose themselves in the process and they let go of the result. Mm. And those that don't hold on to the result, which distracts them from the process. Wow. That's interesting. That's been coming up a lot. I, I work with athletes in individually with coaching um, not quite sports psychology, but a little bit different. And that's something that's been really prominent in the work I've done with my clients over the last couple of weeks. Because when you do let go of the results, you're letting go of something in the future. And so the journey, like you're talking about, is in the present. And it takes presence to be successful at anything, whether it's golf or any sport or just life in general. The more present we are, then the more beautiful life is and the more successful we can be. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty, you know, everybody's sort of been looking for, it's like um, the search for the Holy Grail, like, how do you find the zone? People, you know, when optimal performance, these athletes that piece together phenomenal performances, and they just like, you know, talk about things slowing down and um, them be a, them, them feeling like that everything just starts moving slower and it, it's true. And um, I think it's an innate ability that some people have. I think it's a, it's an acquired ability for athletes that won't allow themselves to go there emotionally Mm. um because i think it's 
one part intellectual, one part emotion, and, and one part spirituality. For sure. And I think that the athletes that have this ability have have such a strong sense of self um, and an inner belief and in, in how that's inspired, whether it's through a spiritual faith, a spiritual bond with what they're doing um, is what gives them the freedom to tap into a, just a completely new level. Wow. That's beautiful. It's absolutely true. That's the, the secret formula right there. We got to be willing to go there though, as you mentioned. So that's awesome. So typically in my interviews, I just kind of go with the flow with questions. Uh, but I do have, I call lightning round questions ready for you and, and feel free to answer quickly or take your time, whatever you prefer. Uh, but wanted to ask you a few things. So are you ready for the lightning round? Yeah. Yeah. I'm ready. So whenever. <laughs> All right. So what's the toughest hole on a PGA course? Well, the toughest holes typically are the par threes and they're also some of the most beautiful holes. So I, I would say, you know, the toughest, one of the toughest holes I've ever played in competition was the open championship at St. Andrews in Scotland. It was the 17th hole. Mm. It's called the road hole. It's one of the most famous holes in golf. What made it tough? The, one of the toughest ones. Oh, there's out of bounds all up and down the right hand side. Uh, the way that the old course hotel had its property lines drawn. You actually, your tee shot goes over, I think the parking lot and you can't see where the ball's landing. And then there's a, a deep, deep, um, pot bunker that protects the center of the green that if you hit it in there, it's, it's just hard to get it out of the bunker, much less get it close to the hole. So there's just one challenge after the next, um, on that particular yeah. hole. Wow. So how many holes in one do you have in your career? 12. Hmm. Are they at 12 different locations or is there one place in particular? No, they're uh, all different places around the world on the PGA tour. While I was at Stanford, I've got one at Santa Ana golf club here, just North of town. Um, one here at Ladera. I mean, that's a, that's a lot. Yeah. Um, but just, just have always had a ability to fly it at the flagstick for some reason. Wow. Awesome. So if you never played golf, what would your dream job be? I'd love to be a high school basketball coach. Wow. Why is that? Well, I love basketball. I love the strategy behind it, but I think it's the one true place where you can still have a prominent impact on young people as they develop and mature into hopefully what, what, will, what they will become um, responsible adults. Hmm. That's awesome. So why is Stanford's mascot a tree, but they're called the Cardinal? That's a great question. Well, they <laughs> used to be the Stanford, they used to be the Stanford Indians. Mm. And in 1972, I believe the Native American student group protested um, and the university changed 
its name to the Stanford Cardinal. Now, if you look at other sort of um, schools across the country that sort of changed, um, Dartmouth used to be the Indians. Now they're the green, Hmm. the, you know, Harvard, the crimson. So I guess if it's maybe the most politically correct way to, <laughs> you know, to still, uh, you know, have uh, a name in the Stanford Cardinal. It's it's actually Cardinal Red. It's not the Cardinals, which mm. a lot of people mistake it for. It's the Stanford Cardinal, uh, which stands for Cardinal Red, and um, the tree is a northern california redwood ah now it makes sense well thank you i appreciate clearing that up um what's the most nervous you've ever been on a golf course and how did you handle it well it was my the opening tee shot in my first match in the 2000 president's cup and i was paired with tiger woods who was the number one ranked player in the world he was my partner we were playing we were representing the united states and we were playing um international team which had vj singh and ernie else and at the time uh vj was the second ranked play in the world ernie was the third ranked play in the world and i was bringing up the rear at about 15th in the world <laughs> um but not only that um their president hw bush and president clinton were about 10 feet away and they were um, spectating oh wow and so i was standing on the tee i had trouble getting the ball on the tee because my hands were shaking and i had wondered how i gotten from ladera golf course to here <laughs> and how somebody it was was there some way i could be transported back to ladera because <laughs> <laughs> it was quite nerve-wracking but i hit a good shot Oh, good. That's awesome. That's a great story. What golfer did you idolize growing up? I really looked up to Seve Ballesteros, who's a Spanish player mm-hmm. and multiple major winner. But I just really liked the way he attacked the golf course. Um, wasn't the most consistent player, but was a consistent winner. And so I just always appreciated how he played. Awesome. What about your favorite non-golf athlete growing up? Oh gosh. You know, I would have to I would probably have to put Terry Bradshaw. Wow. And maybe that that team. Uh Mean Joe Green, Franco Harris, Lynn Swan. I think it was more the Pittsburgh Steelers from the from the the 70s that were my favorite team just because they were awesome mm-hmm. and they just they just crushed it mm-hmm. nice so you do a lot of work with native american children with your foundation so what kind of advice do you have to any native american children listening right now what kind of advice do you have for them to succeed in life either in sports or out of sports well i mean what we try and inspire our kids to do is to be proud of who they are as, as native American people, especially in the state of New Mexico. 
the the communities have still a lot of cultural retention of their traditions, their languages, and their beliefs. And um, to to be proud of that, to carry it forward with honor and dignity, and to um, not that not let not feel like that's a strike against you, but it's actually an asset in the way that you evaluate the world, the way you approach problems, and um, the way that you engage with society. And I think that we try and encourage a strong sense of cultural awareness. We try and encourage um, leadership and an understanding how to be a leader in their own lives and also strong education, but also to make sure that there's an element of, of community awareness and, and making sure that they give back when they can. Wow, beautiful. So last question here, what kind of advice do you have for parents who are raising athletes today? <laughs> Neil, that's a hard one because I, it's interesting in, in probably 90% of the cases where I see other former professional athletes, um, whose kids are now playing sports, we're, we're the most non-confrontational, like laid back. We don't want our kids to play sport, play professional sports. <laughs> we, you know, we want them to get great educations and, and, you know, not have to deal with, you know, beating their bodies up. And it's the parents that I think in a lot of senses have, have never achieved that level they're they push the heck out of their kids um and w without the understanding just of really how much it how much it truly does take to to achieve at the highest level um but you know you know i i don't i don't know if i really say i i i hate to tell people how to parent it's just not it's not my style I just, um, like I said, keeping it simple, keeping their kids healthy, teach them how to practice, um, teach them how to evaluate performance, and um, teach them how to get better. I mean, uh, it's not, I, I, I don't think that the determining factor in a kid's success should be whether or not they play varsity, whether or not they get a college scholarship or they make the pros, but whether or not they achieve their potential. I think that is the, the thing that should be the measure of success. You know, did I, did I put everything I could into it? Mm -hmm. It's fantastic advice. Nota. Um, I really appreciate your time today. This has been a really amazing interview and uh, very much on the same level as what I, what I think about. So it's nice to hear another athlete come from that, that vantage point. So, Best wishes to you. Best wishes to the Pueblos that you're involved in. Again, appreciate your work out there, and we uh, wish them the best as always. All right, take care. Thanks so much. So what were your biggest takeaways? Now, this interview really hit home for me in a lot of different areas, and a major one is something that I focus on with all my clients, and that is the spirituality aspect. Now, I know that spirituality means something different to different people, but the major destination at the end of it comes to a point of love. 
loving what you're doing, loving to train, loving to learn, loving to compete even, but it's important to let go of the outcome. And Nota said it himself, the importance of letting go of outcome and results and appreciating what you're doing is so powerful in life, let alone in sports, let alone in high-level sports like the level that Nota got to. And anytime we focus on outcome, whether we do it as an athlete or parent or focusing on an outcome for our children or just in any everyday life away from sports, we put our energy into something that we want to happen in the future. But that can also end up causing a lot of fear and anxiety within us about not getting whatever it is we want to accomplish for ourselves or that we want our children to accomplish. And all of that exists in the future. So anytime we're in the future mentally, we're away from the present and we must be in the present moment in order to experience life with more joy and love and loving and enjoying what you're doing creates success no matter what the results are. So parents, next time you see your athlete worrying about a big tournament or game, Remember to, first of all, let go of any worry that you have within yourself because kids pick up on that kind of stuff, on that vibe that you're putting out there, whether it's spoken or nonverbal. They will feel that energy from you, even if you don't say anything. And secondly, reassure your child that having fun and enjoying all the emotions, even the bad ones, and the experiences, it's what's really important. Now, the best way for athletes to focus on having fun relates to what I felt was one of the most powerful statements I've heard in any of the interviews I've done, and that's when Nota said, don't let other people's expectations of you dictate your relationship with your sport. Now, if we dig a little bit deeper into the idea of other people's expectations of you, that essentially is approval. And if you remember back to one of my earlier episodes I talk about that, that our suffering, any negative feeling, quote unquote negative feeling that anybody has ever had comes from three different areas of thought and feeling as if the person lacks something. It's lacking control of a person or of a situation, lacking security, like a job, house, money, health, life even. And the third one is fearing as if we don't have approval or that we lack approval from somebody else. Take a minute to think about that. Every negative thought comes from one of those three branches. Sometimes it's a combination of all three of them at different levels and focus and intensity. But approval is so crucial for children who are playing sports. They seek their approval from their coaches, from their peers, whether it's on the field or in the classroom. But most of all, they seek approval from parents. And it's a parent's job. I've said this over and over again, is to love unconditionally. So a child doesn't grow up fearing as if they won't have approval from their parent, which eventually equates to a fear of not having love from their parents. So parents, in order for you to help your child feel like their performance on the field won't dictate the amount of love they receive from you, you've got to let go of expectations of yourself in life as well, whether it's as a parent or a friend or a spouse or even a coach. 
You've got to let go of expectations for yourself. And again, anytime we let go of expectations and of outcome and trust in the flow and the process of life, we're in the present moment. We're not worried about what could or couldn't happen in the future. And that right there is the spiritual side to life and, of course, to sports. Now, remember the three rules that Nota has for his children. Prepare yourself, do your best, and have fun. And if you can help your child live with those three qualities, as well as letting go of results, they will be successful in life, whether it's on the golf course, basketball court, hockey rink, or classroom. Absolutely amazing advice. All right, I hope you enjoyed this. Remember, you can always get a hold of me on my website, aclearmind.com, or email me at gabe at aclearmind.com. I'd love to hear your opinions about this interview or anything else that's coming up for you as well. All right, as always, much love to you and many blessings. Blessings.